If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world including 75% of the Fortune 500 trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com Atlassian Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From Black Lives Matter protesters throwing the statue of a slave trader into the Bristol Harbour, to arguments over monuments to Confederate generals... Statues have become flashpoints for debates around history and memorialisation in recent years, and not without controversy. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from the historian and writer Alex von Tunzelman, whose new book, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History, explores the ongoing debates surrounding statues of historical figures. She spoke to our deputy editor, Matt Elton, about some of the most illuminating examples of statues being torn down from across the centuries, and offers her take on whether they should stand or fall. So, Alex, uh, thank you for talking to us today. Your new book, Fallen Idols, is an exploration of statues and their role in history and some of the more contentious aspects of them in, I suppose, recent years particularly. Um, it feels like that debate about statues has reached something of a fever pitch in the past sort of, 18 months. Why do you think these debates are so so fiery and so divisive? Well, I mean, Matt, I think statues are obviously only one form of 
commemoration of history and of our past. But I think they have become extremely controversial because they're so visible. You know, a lot of towns will have a statue, um, even often quite small places will have some kind of memorial. Um, And statues are kind of particularly, I think, kind of emotive because they look like people. Um, People tend to get quite invested in them as a sort of emotional way. Um, Also, honorific portrait statues, which is basically what we're talking about, are a very, very old form of commemoration. I mean, the oldest examples go back tens of thousands of years, you know, this is a, you know, and exist all over the world in different societies. So it's something that, it's a subject that really can kind of, you know, have a lot of flexibility in it. And right now, I think it's really tapped into um, the kind of current sort of culture wars that are going on um, between kind of people who perhaps sort of tend to a more conservative point of view, people who on the other side perhaps tend towards a more progressive point of view. And I think that's partly because a lot of the statues that are around now, particularly in sort of, you know, a lot of European countries and uh, the US, but actually also all over the world, um, are really from that kind of Victorian period of colonialism and all of this. And so they're kind of really, those are tapping right into very current debates about who we are and uh, what sort of direction we're going in as a society. One of the really interesting things in terms of that debate that I think your book does is it puts this this, these arguments into a much longer context uh, and explore statues that were erected and pulled down hundreds of years ago. Um, how difficult was it to choose the 12 statues that you focus on in this book? It was so difficult because what you very quickly realise when you start looking at the history is that there are a lot of statues <laughs> and a lot of history. Um, I knew that I wanted to focus on modern history. So I start really with the American Revolution, the pulling down of the statue of the King George III that really kicked off the American Revolution. Um, and the reason for that really is that obviously you can keep going further back, you know, to the kind of English Reformation, a huge period of statue pulling down. You can go back to all sorts of parts of history, the Lollards, you know, it's kind of happened again and again that statues are pulled down. But I wanted to focus on political statuary, not religious um, or any other forms. And I wanted to try and keep it within a framework of history that felt contemporary, felt like it was really tapping into current debates. But these debates are extremely old. I mean, you know, even in ancient Egypt, it was extremely common for pharaohs to put up statues of themselves and then their successors would often knock them down um, to establish their own legitimacy. So this is nothing new (laughs) for sure. Um, Are there certain types of people that are more likely to be um, commemorated than others. And do you think it tells us something that all 12 of the statues in your book are of men? It was very deliberate that I picked 12 men for this book. Um, they're 12 men and they're almost all white men. There are exceptions. I've talked about Saddam Hussein, who's obviously Arab, and Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, who uh, defined himself as white, but he was in fact mixed race, um, was his background. Um, There's a deliberate reason for that, really, which is that these sort of, as I say, the kind of statues that we're looking at now, these ones that have come up in the past couple of hundred years, um, are very overwhelmingly of men and of white men. And that, of course, is something that's changing um, all over the world right now. But the statues that are contentious from that period really do come from a kind of high period of colonialism um, and that kind of era. Uh, And it really also ties in very much, in my view, with the kind of Victorian fashion for the idea that history was made by great men. Um, Statues really were a kind of visible form of great man history. And 
there was actually a period called statue mania um, in the late 19th century where statues started going up all over the world. And, you know, suddenly kind of huge numbers of them were going up in Paris and Berlin and London and everywhere. Uh, so much so, actually, that in Paris, they said they had to put um, gates and, you know, fences around the parks to stop artists just depositing their statues there as if they were dogs going to the lavatory. So, you know, really lots of them went up at that point. So I think that's why, you know, I really wanted to focus on that. There are, of course, statues of women. I mean, Queen Victoria gets a look in, but uh, but all the big statues I talk about are of men. Um, writing in The Guardian in June, uh, Gary Young said that we in Britain have a particular sort of fixation with statues. But I was really struck by how internationally diverse um, the examples in your book are. Do you think that says something about Britain's role in this particular period of history? Or do you think that statues are just a global phenomenon in their own right? I mean, it's a really interesting and changing question. So as I say, there's this kind of the modern phenomenon of statuary really does have these kind of roots in that colonial period, very much from a European take, although, of course, North America also went in for them in a big way. I mean, particularly the kind of, you know, post-Civil War statuary that has gone up Confederate statues in the US that are now so controversial there. Um, But actually, what you, you know, it's sort of, really changed above and beyond that. And as I say, statuary really is very ancient and lots of parts of the world had their own indigenous traditions of statuary. And what has happened since the end of the colonial period has been fascinating. So you've also seen, for instance, I mean, huge numbers of statues, of course, going up in the communist period, um, especially in Russia and later in North Korea. Nothing like so many in China or Cuba. These have different places, had different cultures. And then, of course, you know, since the end of the colonial period in ex-European colonies like India, well, India is currently building the biggest statues in the world. And, you know, the current Indian government has an absolute obsession with putting up gigantic statues. So I don't think you can really anymore say that's just colonial or just British. I think it's something that has, you know, there are different traditions in different countries and different contexts and histories, but this certainly exists everywhere. The first example you talk about in your book is a statue of George III that was erected and pulled down in America in the 1770s. Can you tell us what happened and what it tells us about history is viewed, I suppose? Well, that one's a particularly, you know, that's what I kick off with, because I think this is an interesting example that sort of challenges a lot of current um, debate about statues. Uh, so the statue of George III, yes, went up um, in New York, then the province of New York, of course, because, you know, at this time it was still under British control. It was actually a bit of an afterthought. They had re- originally wanted to put up a statue of William Pitt, who the uh, people of New York considered to be responsible for kind of defending their interests against uh, British taxation that they considered highly unfair. Um, but then it was felt that it was actually very bad form to put up a statue of the king's minister without also having a statue of the king, that this was actually not very patriotic. So they had to put up a statue of the king as well. So they ordered this one. Of, of King George III and put it up in Bowling Green in New York. Um, it was an equestrian statue, so it was him riding a horse and he was wearing a sort of Roman toga. And when the Declaration of Independence was read out by General George Washington in New York, um, you know, 1776, um, a mob formed of basically some soldiers, some sailors, and actually some members of the uh, Sons of Liberty and po- probably various civilians, and they ran to Bowling Green straight after hearing the Declaration of Independence, which of course talks lot about George III's personal responsibility for what's happened in the United States. Uh, Sorry, in the the future United States, I should say. Um, After they'd read out the Declaration of Independence, which of course talks a lot about 
you know, George III as personally responsible for some of the kind of abuses that the New Yorkers felt had been carried out in America. Um, this group then, you know, hurried straight to Bowling Green and pulled down the statue, attached ropes around it and pulled it down. We don't know exactly the order that things happened. It was made out of lead, this statue, so it was quite soft, but of course very, very heavy. But they did manage to haul it down um, and then break it into lots and lots of pieces. And actually some of it was melted down and turned into musket balls to be used against the British uh, in the war then of independence after that. Um, So it had this sort of extraordinary fate. And George Washington himself seems to have been somewhat... Uh, unhappy with the fact that there was this lack of discipline, that his soldiers and sailors ran off and pulled this down. But he didn't really say he disapproved of pulling it down. He just thought there was a want of discipline that they, they hadn't, you know, the way this had proceeded, it didn't seem very orderly to him. But it came up as fascinating, you know, in 2020, when suddenly you had these sort of Black Lives Matter protests, and lots of people were pulling down Confederate statues and attacking Confederate statues. Um, and of course, lots of you know, at that time, very sort of people on the right wing in America were saying this is appalling, pulling statues down, erasing history. And then, of course, some people were saying, well, but it's literally the foundation of our nation. I mean, the beginning of the War of Independence was the pulling down of a statue. So, you know, there's a, it's interesting because it challenges some of those perceptions. What you see is that, in fact, it matters very much the context in which a statue went up and in which context it was pulled down. And that the statue itself isn't history, it's the events surrounding it and how it's later interpreted. Is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say, because this is something that gets said again and again when statues come up, is people say, you can't pull it down, that's erasing history. Well, I mean, those of us who work in history, those of us listening to this podcast, I think history is not just contained in lumps of bronze or stone. History is, you know, the study of documents and its discussion and debate and, you know, looking at archives and looking at all sorts of sources. Um the statue really is just a, a piece of propaganda. I mean, that's what a statue is. Sometimes it may have artistic merit. Um, some of them have historical interest for various reasons. I mean, the remainders of George III's statue, so there are a few bits left. There's a bit of a tail um, and there's a bit of an arm, which actually sold for a huge amount of money at auction a couple of years ago after someone found it in their garden. Um, so actually, the relics of that statue are now considered quite valuable and interesting and are mostly in the collection of the New York Historical Society. But the reason they're interesting is because the statue was pulled down, not because the statue itself was of any particular value, but because people actually are fascinated in it as a symbol of revolution. There's obviously strong feelings on both sides of that debate, and we'll unpick some of those as we go on. Um, I wanted to head to your section on Stalin now, who's fascinating because he had literally thousands and thousands, from what I can understand, statues uh, built of himself. What does it tell us that he raised so many statues and that some of them were so enormous? Absolutely gigantic, a lot of them. Um, Well, Stalin really was, and you know, I've got two separate chapters on Lenin and Stalin, partly because, you know, the Soviets were so into statuary (laughs) that there are very different stories to tell. And while Lenin was actually, he did start this kind of putting up statues vogue, but he didn't put up any of himself. He was quite keen to have statues not of himself put up. But after he died and Stalin kind of gradually took over, Stalin had a completely different opinion. Stalin started to put up all the statues of Lenin that we now, you know, have seen sort of thousands of. And that was kind of the beginning of a creation of a cult of personality that he then did himself. So he started by putting up statues of Lenin, who, as I say, would have been really quite unhappy, probably, about all these statues of himself being put up. And then he began to introduce himself in the iconography. So it changes quite quickly, actually. If you look at the kind of 1920s, 1930s, 
the imagery begins with always, you know, Lenin is the big figure and Stalin is kind of like almost a pupil kind of sitting in a in an inferior position. And then very soon that changes and they're portrayed as equals. And then very soon after that, Stalin is portrayed as the great figure and Lenin is this tiny little figure in the background. And so Stalin, you know, really got into this, really started to put up statues of himself everywhere. And I think, you know, this is something we've seen with a lot of dictators in the 20th century, you know, from across the political spectrum is this cult of personality and statues are such an effective part of that because, as I say, they really look like people. So if you put up a massive, massive statue of Stalin in the city, there's an element of Big Brother is watching you. You know, there's an element that you feel that he's almost there. And Stalin really did encourage people to treat his statues as icons, you know, to treat them in a kind of quasi-religious manner. Um, the massive statue of him that went up in Budapest that was pulled down during the Hungarian rebellion in 1956. So, you know, Budapest newspapers, when that went up, were telling people that they should, if they had worries or fears, they should go to the statue, tell it their problems and ask it for advice and the problems would be solved. So that was literally being treated as a religious object, really, at that stage. Um, So I think that's kind of why Stalin went in for them is that they were so incredibly effective at extending his presence um, and really, you know, kind of creating that cult of personality, intimidating a population, impressing the population and creating this kind of, you know, as I say, quasi-religious incarnation of himself. And then does their eventual felling tell us something equally profound about the shift that subsequently happened? Absolutely. Well, as I say, the, you know, the colossal statue in Budapest was actually pulled down during the rebellion there by um, Hungarian rebels who, you know, who were really fed up with Stalinist control. Um, However, Khrushchev was then on a program of de-Stalinization and, you know, that kind of meant that actually a lot of Stalin statues across the Soviet Union were removed in the years after that. Of course, we can also see, you know, that Stalingrad was renamed and so on. You know, these there were these changes in terms of how Stalin was seen and he was pushed back to the background again. Initially, of course, Stalin's body was also put in Red Square alongside Lenin's body. Then it was removed in the 1960s and buried in the Kremlin Wall. So there was a real effort to push back, actually even within the Soviet Union, against the cult of Stalin, really to kind of put him back in his place, as it were. Um, And so that does tell us about big political changes in the Soviet Union, that actually Khrushchev and the leaders after him didn't, they kept invoking Lenin. They were not so keen to invoke Stalin. So so there was a a big shift that went on there. And that's why I think when you, you know, when you came to the fall of communism and, you know, then you start seeing, of course, statues of Lenin started coming down and so on. But by that time, there really weren't very many statues of Stalin left. Um, Certainly nothing like as many as there used to be. So if, if, um, statues coming down tells us something about the people that are doing that felling. Is it true that statues going up tells us as much about the people doing the erecting as it does the person who they're supposed to commemorate? Absolutely. And often that can be quite complicated. So, I mean, you know, so talking about someone like Stalin, I mean, he, as I say, really was himself behind the programme to put up statues of himself. But that's certainly not always the case. Um, Quite frequently, you know, one statue that obviously got a lot of attention, um, Edward Colston's statue in the UK, which was the one that in 2020 was pulled down in Bristol by um, a mob of the public, um, hauled that down. That was the only one that was actually pulled down by members of the public um, and was then thrown in Bristol Harbour. So that statue, you know, was... So Edward Colston was a, a... 
merchant in Bristol. Um, he was also known as a very great philanthropist in Bristol, and lots of things were named after him. But what was also the case is that he made an awful lot of money in the slave trade. And he wasn't just some sort of passive shareholder or something. He really was effectively CEO of the Royal Africa Company. You know, he was actually very instrumental um, in promoting and expanding the slave trade. So this is something that, you know, funnily enough, tracks this whole movement of history. That, that statue of him was not put up by him. It was put up, in fact, you know, almost 200 years after he died um, in the late 19th century by a Bristol merchant called James Arrowsmith, who was actually made a lot of his money in publishing. And, you know, it went up in a very different context, um, by which time slavery was obviously illegal by that point, had been outlawed. And in fact, the British Empire really by that point was seeing itself as a very anti-slavery um, kind of, you know, body. Um, Royal Navy had been going out and fighting slavery. You know, it saw itself as a much more liberating force in that way. So even when that statue went up, they actually had to suppress um, Edward Colston's history of slave trading. That was edited out entirely, really, of the speeches and so on on the day. You know, one speech mentioned that he'd made some of his wealth in the West Indies, and that was literally all that was said. So, you know, if you were listening hard, you might have uh, got the idea that there was something between the lines, but it simply wasn't mentioned. Um, and instead, he was presented as this sort of virtuous son of Bristol. And the reason for that was that Arrowsmith and these people at the time were terribly worried about the rise of socialism. Um, so what they were trying to do was present the idea that, you know, instead of socialism, we could have philanthropy, we could have, you know, these responsible citizens and, you know, who are sort of bourgeois and so on. We don't need to, you know, tear down the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie can be virtuous. So the statue is really very much put up in that 19th century context of, you know, trying to shore up civic society from that. Um, and then, you know, when in the 20th century, actually very early 20th century, people started to really look again and find out about Colston's history of slavery. That was actually quite early on. It was, in fact, that didn't come from kind of Black Lives Matter. It was in the 1920s. In fact, um, a I think it was a vicar who initially wrote a biography which uncovered some of this. Then again, the, conversa the conversation started to shift again and people started to be much more critical about Colston. And really by the kind of 1990s, that had become quite a loud chorus of people kind of criticising him. So, you know, his, his reputation kind of went up and down, up and down <laughs> throughout history. And when the statue was put up, it was put up by people who had a very specific agenda of their own, which Edward Colston himself would not have understood at all. I mean, Edward Colston was living in a world where socialism was not a word, you know, and, and therefore would not have understood the opposition to it. He certainly wouldn't have understood why there was so much opposition to, you know, his, his own career and life the slave trading and so on, which, you know, he, I mean, he would have understood there was opposition to that industry, but that, you know, he didn't live in a world where that was illegal. He lived in a world where that was normalised. So, so you know, all of this had changed entirely by the time he was put up and changed again by the time he came down. So it reflects big changes in society and thinking. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It would be great to bring the temperature down on some of these debates a little bit. Um, and instead think about, you know, the kind of the potential in all of this for, yes, the human level. I mean, statues are supposed, after all, to represent the humans. So it's OK to engage with them on that level. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Are there other statues that you think particularly reflect um, changing historical and social currents in that way? I think lots of them do. And it's fascinating to see that their meanings often shift. And actually, these debates are often not over either. I mean, there's one that I look at in the book. I mean, it's actually two. There's two identical statues of King Leopold II of the Belgians who... Of course, you know, many listeners, I'm sure, will be familiar with um, books like King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild that really looked into the history of the Belgian Congo and the Congo Free State that King Leopold ran himself, um, which, you know, is a very kind of upsetting, awful story of mismanagement of Leopold's private colony in the Congo. Um, these two identical statues went up. Again, it was kind of, you know, almost two decades after his death in the 19, in 1920s. And there was really a sort of, a, again, you know, rising and falling tides of history around this. Um, Leopold actually was disgraced in his own lifetime because these stories about abuses in the Congo came out. And there was really an international outcry against him, you know, led by extremely famous people at the time, like Mark Twain and Booker T. Washington, Arthur Conan Doyle, all these kind of people spoke against him. Um, and the Congo Free State was removed from his control by the Belgian government and taken under their own control. And so really, when he died in 19, 1909, he was rather a disgraced figure. Um, and then in the 1920s, after World War One, of course, you know, everybody's minds had moved on. And the Belgian royal family really went to great lengths to try to rehabilitate his reputation to say that, you know, this wasn't true. He was, you know, a great man and all of this. And, you know, none of this was the case that, you know, he had been so abusive. So they started putting up statues. So there's two identical ones. There was one that went up in Brussels and one that went up in what is now Kinshasa, but then, of course, was called Leopoldville in uh, the Congo. And 
they've kind of had totally different fates. So the one in Brussels has kind of, you know, this campaign to rehabilitate Leopold went really quite well in Belgium. And the one in Brussels stayed up without incident, particularly until the 1990s, until people started to you know, talk again about what had happened in the Congo, whether Leopold was responsible. And now it's intensely controversial. We saw last year, I mean, you know, really over the last kind of decade or so, it's been so repeatedly covered in red paint, so repeatedly covered in graffiti that it's almost kind of, they must be spending an absolute fortune uh, cleaning the damn thing (laughs) off the whole time Um, because it just, you know, is constantly a focus for protest now. And I think now there is quite a serious move that it should possibly be removed. Um, that's under discussion uh, and the Belgian authorities have really indicated that they want they want it to be removed or at least recontextualised in some way. Meanwhile, the one in Congo has kind of undergone a different fate in that it was pulled down quite soon after independence. It was pulled down in 1966 and just sort of dumped behind a shed with a whole load of other colonial statues. But then suddenly, without warning, in 2005, it went back up again. Um, And the reason for that was not anything to do with the Belgians. It was that the then um, culture minister in the Congo, um, a man called Christophe Mzungu, thought that colonial statues actually were very important as part of Congolese heritage, whether, you know, good or bad, we should look at the whole picture. So he thought they should go back up. But this turned out to be a very controversial point of view that almost nobody agreed with. So actually, it was pulled down again the same day. So that went up and down very, very quickly um, and then was removed to the grounds of the National Museum in Kinshasa. So, you know, often you find that actually these things, the debate isn't settled, that actually different generations will often have different perspectives and these things can, you know, go up, come down, go up again, come down again, <laughs> go up again, uh, you know, in a, in a real series of events. So I, th- I think the conversations will, will be ongoing about all of these. Uh, one of the uh, arguments that's often put forward about the reason we should keep statues is that by taking them down, we're erasing history. Um, there's a chapter of your book that deals with this in quite a subtle and quite a complex way that talks about Raphael Truillo. Mm. Um, who I have to confess, I hadn't really heard anything about before I read your book, but I think you argue that's part of the point. Can you talk us through this story and what it tells us about these wider debates? So, Rafael Trujillo is one of the most extraordinary characters, really, I think, in 20th century history. And it's amazing that he's not better known, but maybe this is part of the reason. He's... um. He was dictator of the Dominican Republic, which is uh, half of the island of Hispaniola. The other half is Haiti in the Caribbean. Um, And I'd sort of come across him. I previously wrote a book called Red Heat about the Cold War in the Caribbean and really about these kind of three warring uh, dictators, Fidel Castro, Rafael Trujillo and um, Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. So, you know, that was a time of extreme drama in the Caribbean. Um, But Trujillo is kind of fascinating. I mean, completely fascinating. So he was very much kind of an an extraordinarily authoritarian dictator and kleptocrat. He really did kind of just take over the whole of the Dominican economy, really, or at least a very, very large part of it, Um, you know, absorbed huge amounts of cash, kept an incredibly tight control on the the nation with, you know, secret police and torture and disappearances, a really horrible um, dictator, terrible regime. And of course, absolutely loved putting up statues of himself, did so all the time. Um, every home actually had to have a sign, you know, saying in this house, Trujillo is the chief. Um, lots of houses had sort of statuettes and small models. And then he put up statues in public all over the place. Every public building had to have a plaque glorifying him and so forth. 
Um, and the statues had an enormous range of exciting action poses. You know, he was sometimes on horseback and he was, or he was in academic robes to show his great brain or he was, you know, in sort of in, in a white tie and tails sometimes and looking suave and sophisticated. So all sorts of different uh, costumes and poses and everything. Um, and what he was particularly keen on, where he's quite different and, I mean, you know, I'm afraid there's going to be a little bit of laughter in the back, is that Trujillo was particularly keen on on projecting himself as somebody with immense sexual power. Um, Anyone who's read the novel The Feast of the Goat will, of course, know a little bit about this. He was somebody with an immense sexual appetite, um, and he wanted to be known as somebody with great sexual power. So a lot of the time, he would build statues either in front of or nearby enormous phallic obelisks of himself. And he would constantly put these obelisks up um, as a sort of statement, really, of his phallic power. And he wasn't even subtle about it. I mean, you know, when they were unveiled, people would say things like, uh, you know, now we can all see the great power of Trujillo that is being unveiled. You know, it, it was everybody was in on the joke. You know, it wasn't something that an art historian is saying, oh, these are a little bit phallic. It's like, no, they really are intended to look exactly like what they're supposed to look like. Um, now, most of these... Uh, after he he eventually Trujillo met a rather sticky end. He was um, by the 1960s. It had all got rather difficult for him, partly because of the rise of Fidel Castro, who absolutely hated him, um, and you know what was going on in the kind of Cold War generally at that time. And he was he'd spent a lot of time trying to manipulate public opinion in America to support him presenting himself as an anti-communist, you know, and this bulwark against Fidel Castro. But really, the Americans by this point, really run out of patience for him and realised that, if anything, he was kind of in the way of them taking any action about Castro because everybody else in Latin America thought Trujillo was really a far bigger problem than Fidel Castro. So uh, he was actually assassinated um, in 1961 by a group of his domestic opponents, um, basically other powerful people in the Dominican Republic, and uh, it seems that they had received arms from the CIA to do that. Um, now, after he died, there was kind of a period of a power struggle with his son trying to get in on the act and, and various other people trying to get in on the act. But uh, the statues of him were all taken down and actually they were made completely illegal. So these days in the Dominican Republic, it is it would be absolutely illegal to reveal any of these statues of Trujillo to put them up in public um, or any of this stuff glorifying him. Um, but there are concerns around that and it's not necessarily to do with the statues but in a sense because that history then what happened quite soon afterwards was that his kind of deputy um Balagwe came back in Joaquin Balagwe came back in and kind of you know took over again for many decades is that the history was never really taught in schools about Trujillo um that period was just missed out people would learn about earlier colonial periods of Dominican history they wouldn't learn about Trujillo and his abuses um the history was really suppressed. So there are some people now who think that taking those statues down was part of the problem. But on the other hand, what you now see is that people who do not know the history, in fact, are the people who want the statues to go back up because they think, oh, maybe he was this glorious leader after all. They don't necessarily know, you know, the full background and all the dreadful things that happened under his regime. So, you know, it's a very, very complicated debate, that one. And it's really quite interesting. And, you know, as I say, you will certainly see different points of view. That um, specific example is an inversion of the usual idea that if we remove a statue, we are erasing history. 
which I think throws up all kinds of questions about the kind of debates that we have about this kind of thing. Um, I wanted to talk about one more specific example before we get on to some of the wider debates, because I was really fascinated by your section on Saddam Hussein, Mm. because I think this is another example of where it pushes to the very edge of people trying to recreate or even create new historical truths. Can you just really briefly talk us through this example and what it tells us? So Saddam is a fascinating one because a lot of people will probably remember um, after the kind of American-led invasion of Iraq, when that was sort of just happened, there were these incredibly dramatic images everywhere on television. They were shown all around the world of this massive statue of Saddam being hauled down um, in Baghdad. And, you know, very dramatic image. And it was so you know, this was kind of so fetishized that actually this image was replayed like literally every few minutes on CNN at that time um, and also on other news channels like Fox and so forth in the US and, and around the world. We were constantly being shown this image. And what's kind of emerged about that story is that there's a lot more to that than just that. This wasn't just a case of a bunch of Iraqis, you know, formed a mob and pulled down the statue of this hated dictator. It was actually completely staged, really, that... What actually had happened is that American troops there that day um, in, you know, Paradise Square in Baghdad, Fardis Square, um, they wanted to create a sort of photo opportunity. They wanted a big dramatic moment that felt like the conclusion of the war, you know, felt like a sort of, you know, exciting televisual moment. So they'd actually been pulling down statues of Saddam Hussein. There were so many. Again, Saddam put up so many statues himself. They'd been pulling them down for weeks on basically a daily basis, but none of those statues have been particularly exciting, you know, hadn't really come together as a visual image, even though some of them had been filmed. Um, So this one they kind of staged in the main... In, in, in well, not main square actually. Fedor Square is not the big square in Baghdad, but it, it's certainly you know it's substantial and sort of reasonably central. Um, but it really was kind of you know quite it's quite complicated looking into it exactly where all the ideas came from. So there were Iraqis involved. Um, the interesting question is to what extent the American troops who helped really came up with the idea themselves, or to what extent the Iraqis did, or was it a kind of did everybody come up with the same idea at the same time? But it seems extremely unlikely because the Iraqis started trying to pull this thing down, but it was massive and incredibly heavy and they just couldn't really do it. It was quite a small crowd of Iraqis there. So the only way they got it down was that they were able to use American equipment, um, American trucks and American troops to and an American armoured vehicle to pull it down, um, attaching ropes to it and hauling the whole thing down. And then it was an American soldier who climbed up it and put an American flag Uh, at the top of it. And then that created, suddenly the Pentagon kind of went wild and said, no, no, you've got to take that down straight away. It looks like imperialism. Um, So that flag very quickly went down and they put an Iraqi flag up instead. But I think even the Iraqi flag, there's some indication that that may well also have been owned by an American soldier. So it was kind of a simulated event. And then, then you had everyone on TV afterwards, all these commentators and so on saying, this is a Berlin Wall moment. This is so incredible. You know, this is like, they kept talking about the Berlin Wall. But of course, the Berlin Wall really was spontaneously pulled down by people. This has not happened. This was a staged Berlin Wall moment. And of course, what we now know is that it really wasn't the end of the war. This was presented on all these channels as this satisfying conclusion to a story. But of course, it took months and months then for Saddam to actually be found himself. Um, And then, of course, the trial and all of this complicated stuff. Meanwhile, of course, war raged on in Iraq for years and years and years. You know, troops were then pulled out and then troops had to go back in again um, because it was such a mess. And really, Iraq today is still in a very damaged state. So, you know, this was presented as a kind of really satisfying story where the pulling down of a statue would be this kind of 
you know, cataclysmic end and this dramatic moment, but it was really kind of fake. You know, that wasn't the end of the war at all. So that was almost somebody trying to use the pulling down of a statue to create history in a way. Um, But I think you can't do it just, you know, you can't simulate that. Sometimes these things happen and they're natural and they are cathartic, um, but you can't, it's sort of like a cause and effect confusion. Sometimes a revolution might pull down a statue, but you can't conclude a revolution by just pulling down a statue and hoping that works. I mean, so we've talked about a whole range of examples there from right across the world to try to pull together some of the some of the themes, I suppose. Did you emerge from this, having written this book, with any different understanding of, of statues and the debates around them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's, it made me very interested in the fact that I think, you know, now when this debate is had, it's so often kind of posed very simply as a sort of, you know, as I say, sort of conservatives versus progressives. Conservatives love statues, progressives hate statues. You know, this is very, very simplistic primary colours version of the debate. And of course, that's not true at all. It very much depends on context. So in fact, for instance, when we saw the pulling down of Lenin statues, the big Lenin fall, it was called in Ukraine in about 2015. A lot of conservatives really rejoiced at that because they felt that was casting off, you know, this kind of communist past. Um, And some progressives actually weren't sure what to think about that and weren't necessarily quite so into it. So in fact, you know, what it's made me realise is that statues are certainly, there's no simple answers on this and there's certainly no simplicity to the debate. It really does depend. Every statue has a different context and meaning. Um, And that they can also come to mean very different things from whatever the intention was. Um, You know, however... whoever puts them up, the point is that what they do is then exist in society and society changes around them. So actually the meaning can shift and people can understand quite different things than were originally intended from a statue sometime after it's been put up. So it's complicated for sure. Um, But I do think it's kind of these discussions are worth having because they lead us into such fascinating histories. You write that actually the discussion itself is great because it opens up history to kind of new audiences. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for instance, take Edward Colston from last year. I think very few people outside Bristol probably knew that name in the UK before that statue was pulled down. And then, you know, we can have, now we can have discussions about, okay, so who was he? What did he do? You know, what are the kind of... um, you know, what is the full story here? And how did that statue go up and why? Why did it go up so much later? You know, these these discussions are something you have because this dramatic thing has happened. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean we always have to pull down a statue to start a conversation, but I think we can take the opportunity um, that these discussions are happening. And now, you know, when there are controversial statues, and you know there are plenty still up, I know that there is a campaign now to remove the statue of Clive, for instance, in Whitehall, you know, there's obviously been graffiti on the statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square. I think rather than kind of panicking about these things, what we should do is have a conversation. We should say, okay, so, you know, let's look again at Clive. He's somebody who isn't taught very much in schools now, where actually people don't learn a lot about him in the curriculum. I suspect a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell you very much about him through no fault of their own. He's just not taught. So let's discover more about this figure. Let's talk about him. Let's have that discussion. You know, fantastic. Let's learn more about our history. What would you say to people who might argue we've had plenty of conversation, plenty of time for conversation about these statues, we should just just pull them down? I think Gary Young, I mentioned earlier, 
in the Guardian argued we should probably just pull down every statue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I enjoyed his provocative argument on this. It's definitely a provocative argument. Um, and I enjoyed it because, you know, Gary, I have huge respect for Gary Young and I think he makes his case and he makes it in a witty, interesting, lively way and absolutely go and read his piece and see what you think. You know, why not? Let's have these discussions. I do come to a different conclusion myself. I don't think we need to pull all the statues down. I think some of them are quite interesting. Some of them are charming. Some of them are not particularly political. I mean, Eric Morecambe dancing on Morecambe Bay is really quite sweet. And, you know, I don't think is necessarily offending anyone. I mean, you know, people can, some of them can be joyous. There's, I don't think we need to pull them all down. I do think that it's absolutely worth all of us as communities having discussions about you know, our values and what represents us and what we want in our public space. And, you know, there's no need to pull down, in my opinion, anything that, you know, generally gives joy and pleasure and is is something that we love. Um, but I do think that if, you know, in the cases, and there are absolutely cases where some of these, are, you know, emblems are really causing serious hurt, um, some of them certainly seen in the States with some Confederate statues become rallying points for organisations like the Ku Klux Klan. Well, then actually that does need to be taken seriously. It does need to be looked at. So we also need to not, you know, as it were, set in stone our entire community and civic space. We can change it if there is something that actually, I don't think there's any beauty in causing pain. I think if a statue is causing serious pain, then we need to have a discussion what to do about that. One of the things that emerges and surprised me actually about your book is is humour and how humorous some of these events and statues are. Um, there's the statue of the mice knitting some DNA, I think, in Russia, for instance. And even you talked about the, sta- uh, the people pulling down the statue of Stalin in Budapest, um, saying, I think they said, hold on, little Joseph, almost in an affectionate way as they were pulling down the statue. Do you think that these debates have become so heated and so enormous that we're losing sight of the sort of human aspect of these statues and also the ability for them to be lighthearted? I've hoped that I can begin to bring that back. I think we do need indeed to kind of, you know, it would be great to bring the temperature down on some of these debates a little bit um, and instead think about, you know, the kind of the potential in all of this for, yes, the human level. I mean, statues are supposed, after all, to represent the humans. So it's okay to engage with them on that level. And also, yes, some of them are really very funny. And some of them, of course, it's the very kind of, you know, the alterations that are done to them make them interesting. I mean, certainly anyone who's been to Glasgow to the art museum and seen the statue that always has a traffic cone on its head outside it, you know, that statue is photographed much more because it has a traffic cone on its head than it ever would be if it didn't have a traffic cone on its head. Um, You know, similarly, there's a statue in East London. There's an extraordinary statue of, it's not, the statue itself is not extraordinary, but uh, it's a statue of Gladstone. Um, And its hands are always red. They're always painted red. Occasionally, the council scrubs off the red and then someone paints it red again straight away. And this actually dates back to the Match Girls strike, uh, that the Match Girls, who kind of had a a protest around this statue of Gladstone's policies, and now the story goes, although I think this is probably apocryphal, that they cut their hands and bled onto the statue's hands and left it with blood-red hands. I think that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration. That probably is an over-dramatisation at the time. But certainly since then, it's been painted red. And the entire reason that statue is interesting is because it always has red hands. Other than that, it's just a you know, fairly bog standard statue of Gladstone. There's probably quite a few of them around. You know, it's not very artistically interesting. But when you see it like that in the history of the East End and you see it in the context of, 
you know, protests and the match girls and all that, it suddenly becomes a much more interesting object. So that's another option, of course, is that we can always amend statues. We don't just have to pull them down. We can also think of creative ways to make them our own in new generations. Because time, I suppose, is always changing. And you would say that these are literally set in stone and in some cases don't reflect the kind of present day. Yeah, exactly. And so why not put a traffic cone on the head if it cheers you up? I mean, that's fine. It won't really cause any damage, will it? It's just quite a laugh. Are there, finally, are there any examples or stories uh, or statues that we haven't talked about that you think we should? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> I could talk about so many statues. I think, um, you know, we could go on and on. There are so many. But I do think that what I'd encourage people to do, as I say, is not think of them in a kind of, I mean, although there are similar themes that come up in a lot of these stories, I really would encourage people to look at them as individual objects and think about them in their context and think about them separately. You know, there are there are some that are beautiful and amazing and uplifting, and there are some that are frankly cruddy and, you know, unappealing and, you know, represent some quite nasty things. And so so I think you need to kind of, you know, not really have a one size all one size fits all response. I think you, you know, this requires uh, some thought, but it can be quite fun. As I say, you know, all of these will lead you to such fascinating historical stories. And it's a great place, really, to, to start the conversation, to start thinking about the history that has brought us to this point. That was the writer and historian Alex von Tunzelman. Her new book, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History, is published by Headline and is available now. You can find a link in the episode description of this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do leave us a review or tell your friends all about us. It really helps us if you can spread the word. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Susan Tomes about the history of the piano. Thank you.